So as the, you could see from the readings, we're in Zechariah 10, and we'll just go into the first part of Zechariah 11, and uh, wouldn't bring it up except that it could be a distraction a little bit if you are used to hearing me and you go, does he sound more nasally than usual? The answer is yes. Um, it should be coming out of this. I, I'm basically fine. We'll see. Um, but I'm basically fine. Um, but don't want you to be distracted. So anyway, so that's it. Uh, Zechariah chapter 10. One of the interesting things about it is it's a reiteration of what we see in Zechariah 9. Zechariah 9 talks about this battle that the Lord is going to win for his people. Their situation is that they're ruined. Ruined people, devastated people. They have no hope for a future. God's people uh, were under his discipline. Where they were, the effect of the situation that they were in, they should have been completely annihilated or absorbed into another people. And yet God speaks to them. They had no hope and God speaks to them and he promises them a future. He's going to fight for his people. He's going to secure for them a future. And that's how they're going to get it. They couldn't do it themselves. The Lord is going to step in and they're going to win this great battle. He's going to defeat their enemies and sort of weaves in the pictures of their present situation and a near future with an ultimate future that we see in glory. Chapter 10 portrays the same battle, but it does it from a different perspective. The focus in chapter 10 is on leadership. Really, I mean, you know, you start the passage and you can uh, see it as, as plain as can be, but leadership's important. It brings big impact, great consequences. And the main image, something familiar to them, less so to us, um, except through like maybe a biblical lens, but very familiar uh, to them, it was the, the image of a shepherd. It fit the context. It was common to them, used sometimes of religious leaders for sure, but uh, kings an awful lot. A king was seen as a shepherd. A religious leader could be seen as a shepherd. A lot of the people, main figures in their history were shepherds. Moses and David, uh, Jacob, and so on. God is depicted as a shepherd in Psalm 23. It fits. A shepherd has a flock that... He tends to and cares for and protects and all of that stuff, guides and everything. So it's big, big impact. Only God is ultimate, but whenever it comes to the issue of leadership, it has huge consequences. Only God is ultimate, but good leadership is a general rule, good for people. Bad leadership, bad for people. Right? So what, how do we see this? If the, if the focus in chapter 10 is on the leadership of these returning exiles to their homeland, how do we see that? We see it in the first two verses where the problem for God's people is described. Look at verses 1 and 2 uh, with me again. It starts off and you would go, are you, are you sure? And it seems benign enough where in verse 1 God says, turn to me, ask me. Uh, for rain. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain from the Lord who makes the storm clouds and he will give them showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field. But the reason he does that, what's going on is uh, looks like they're tempted to do something else. You see them uh, going the wrong way. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams, 
You have empty consolation. And then the consequence of that is that they wander like lost sheep. They're afflicted like sheep without a shepherd. Household gods, they're dead, they're empty. Diviners, right? They're supposed to be able to see into the spirit world or speak to the dead. And they, they don't utter any truth. They're empty lies and so on. The idea is that these people, for a lack of leadership, for a lack of guidance, when things get tough, they have a tendency to want to turn you know, to these superstitious, empty, dead gods. And the effect of that is great. It's like, they, like sheep. They wander around, lost, uh, subject to predators. Um, why are they acting like that? It says at the very end, you see what the problem is. They're afflicted for the lack of a shepherd. They don't, they don't have shepherds present doing what shepherds do. They don't have leadership there. You know, doing, taking care of the business that you would expect. So that's the problem. There's this lack of leadership there. Lack of good leadership anyway. And the Lord answers that throughout the rest of the passage we're going to look at. But it begins in verse 3 where he says, My anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. It's helpful to ask who the shepherds are and who the leaders are uh, to whom he's referring. Leaders literally... Uh, means male goats. You probably have a little note there. It says male goats. What an interesting name for a leader. Technically, sometimes it was used for foreign leaders like kings and stuff like that. You can see that in different passages uh, throughout the Old Testament. So, but as you look through the passage as a whole, and I'm not going to point this out every time, but it looks like there are times it refers to foreign leadership. They're under the rule of foreign leaders. And as well as those local leaders, leaders in Judah, who basically use their position to work in cahoots to advantage themselves. So in other words, it's these foreign leaders, these foreign kings, plus the local leaders, religious and governmental, I think it's both, who basically instead of serving the people, serve themselves by leveraging their position to, so that they could have the advantage and rather than give that advantage away. And God says... My anger is hot at them, right? And then the rest of the passage, God says, here's what I'm going to do. And it's six things. Here's the problem. There's a lack of good leadership. And these people have sold out the flock. They've leveraged their position to exploit them rather than care for them. And God says, that makes me angry. And I'm going to do these six things. Number one, I'm going to punish the bad leaders. Look at the beginning of verse 3. Anger is hot against the shepherds. I will punish the leaders. And the reason is that he cares for his flock. Right? Uh, you get this. Maybe the best way to get this in our day and age is if you're a parent. Right? If you're a parent. You're, your kids, you love your kids. You would die for your kids. Um, and somebody unfairly attacks you, it's unpleasant, but whatever. Right? Life happens. And, and it's just you deal with it. You learn to roll with it. But if somebody unfairly attacks your child, man, it's on then, right? You, you want to step in the gap right away, especially if it's beyond just a criticism or something like that. They're actually looking to exploit them. And that's the scenario that God sees. They're exploiting my children, and I'm going to punish them. The second thing that he says he's going to do is at the end of verse 3, 
He's going to transform His people from weak to warriors. Look, they're this flock. The Lord of hosts cares for His flock. Right? These sheep. And will make them like His majestic steed in battle. They go from a flock, you know, of these sheep wandering around lost, vulnerable to all kinds of attacks and whatnot. Uh, They've not been properly watched over. That's what they were, or that's what they they are now, but what they're going to be is this majestic steed, this battle horse that charges into the enemy, crashes into the enemy. It's a big transformation. You know, sheep aren't known for their warrior-like qualities, right? So he's going to transform them, big transformation. Third thing he says he's going to do, he's going to raise up leaders who will fight for them rather than exploit them. He's going to raise up these leaders who are going to fight for them rather than for themselves. It says that in verses 4 and 5. All these things that the Lord says He'll do, um, you know, in, in verses 4 and 5, but he, he, in, in saying that He's going to replace these bad leaders with good leaders, there are three metaphors He uses to describe them. The cornerstone, the tent peg, and the battle bow. Okay, this wasn't like in the 1960s where we've got video and stuff like that. This is over 2,500 years ago. So whenever we see metaphors like this, you know, it's, uh, it's reasonable that we might go, well, what does that mean? What are these leaders going to have about them that suggest uh, a real strength and a real change in leadership? Well, the cornerstone be something that it was this primary stone and the, and the rest of the building rested on it. It's going to be the kind of leaders that create stability. The tent peg, uh, house and tent, a lot of times, depending on the context in the Hebrew, would refer to the same thing. And a tent peg is what held down the house. It stabilized the house, right? Had to have that against the wind and so on. So another image of a house being protected and stable. And then finally, the battle bow. That was a weapon. So suggest military strength, the ability to defend yourself and be protected. But the main thing we know is that they're going to win big. They're going to fight, and they're going to win big. It says at the end of verse 5, because the Lord is with them. That God, one of the things He's going to do to address this problem, He's going to raise up and give them new leaders, and they're going to be good leaders. They're going to be strong leaders who fight for them instead of themselves. Fourth thing, it's going to give them a good future. This was the big theme in verse 9. A ruined people without a future, and God gives this to them. This glorious future. Verse 6, all these things that the Lord will do. He's going to strengthen. He's going to save. Remember, they're in exile. He's going to bring them back. He's going to answer their prayers. And in chapter 7, verse 13, one of the things that God said that, uh, that He was going to do as a punishment is that He had spoken to them and they didn't listen to Him. And so whenever they called out to pray to Him, He wasn't going to answer their prayers. And He's changing that. He's going to answer them uh, in their prayer. And the reason, He says, is because He has compassion on them. The effect is to restore them as though they had never been disciplined like this in the first place. All these things, strengthen, save, bring them back, regather them, answer their prayer. And by the time you get to verse 7, it says Ephraim, whoever that is, is going to be this mighty warrior up above in in verse 6. He also used this little phrase, the house of Joseph. This would have meant a lot to them because the, the smaller kingdom was the southern kingdom. That was Judah. But the house of Joseph and Ephraim would have been synonymous with uh, the northern kingdom, Israel. And God has is, uh, given this gracious little clue there 
that even these people who had been devastated, the northern tribes had been uh, conquered by Assyria 722 B.C., way before the southern kingdom had. And they had been exiled. And what, what God is saying is, my, my salvation is going to all my people. Uh, all of those people, it's not just Judah, it's not just the southern kingdom. And the effect is going to be something that we, is, it says they're going to be glad. You look at the end of it, the Ephraim will become like a mighty warrior, and because of the way God has strengthened them, look in the middle of verse 7, their hearts shall be glad as with wine. It's a very Baptist thing to say. Glad with wine, like a fellowship where they're sharing together and they're rejoicing together, and then their children see it. And they're going to be glad too because they're going to see what the Lord has done and they're going to know that it's Him. And so it says their hearts rejoice in them. It's going to be a real gladness, a real joy in what God has done for them. The fifth thing God says He'll do is He's going to regather them as His flock in verses 8 through 12. Pretty cool the way this section works out. In verses 8 and 9, you get the image of the shepherd. He says at the beginning of verse 8, I'm going to whistle them and they're going to gather together. Remember, they're in exile, and the, and the picture here is, again, very familiar to them, but if you were a shepherd, one of the ways that you would, you know, communicate with the flock was you would whistle, you know, like, the, like I mean, we do this more often with dogs. I did it with my kids. I couldn't yell out enough, so I would whistle, and they would hear the whistle, and they would, I know, not very good parenting of me, but it was, it was effective, right? So I shepherded my little flock uh, with my whistle. And there's this image of God the shepherd whistling. He's calling out for his flock in exile, and they're going to come back. He's redeemed them, he says. They're his. He bought them. They belong to him. And so he's calling those who are his back to him. And in verse 10, you get to see this massive return from the far reaches of exile. Mentions Egypt and Assyria. So Egypt would represent the most significant military power to the south, and Assyria would be the most significant military power to the north historically. And they're going to come from all over, and he says it's going to fill up the land, and his little phrase here is, till there is no room for them. So he mentions like Gilead, that's the Transjordan area to the east of the Jordan River. It's not, not a lot of people live there historically. Or um, Lebanon, the most northern part of the promised land. What he's saying is all these parts that even throughout the best of our history weren't very significantly populated, it's, we're going to be bursting at the seams. God's going to regather his people and he's going to do more than what was done before. As it grows and as it develops, he's going to bless us beyond whatever our prior limitations were, way beyond our former glory days. He's promising them something beyond what they had ever experienced or even heard about before. Verse 11 says it's going to be like something that they would relate to from their history. It's going to be like a second exodus. Look at this little phrase. It starts, he shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. Like as Moses led it, uh, the people out of exodus, right? The sea parted, as people go through and then they crash down uh, on the Egyptians to defeat them. And that's what this is going to be like. This regathering and return is going to be like a second exodus. The overlords are going to be disempowered. So Assyria to the north says it's going to be laid low and 
Egypt isn't going to have her scepter anymore. She's not going to rule anymore. And you look at the verse 12, you get to see the effect of this. I will make them strong in the Lord and they will walk in his name, declares the Lord. There is all of a sudden God's people have been scattered. They've been disciplined. They don't even really have an identity as far as the nations are concerned. If they would be regathered, it's going to be a miracle. That's exactly what God does. And you get to see in his people holiness and faithfulness. There's this reconciliation. Now, if you're a preacher guy, and I happen to be a preacher guy, you look at chapter 11 and those first three verses, you go, what do I do with those? Let's just say you're preaching to a flock, using that metaphor, and you go, do I preach those in chapter 10, same kind of genre, or do I preach them in chapter 11? You can do either. I might do both. Uh, If I'm going too short next week, I'll just preach it again next week. But it fits here because it's still in the theme of leadership. The sixth thing that he says he's going to do, is he's going to remove the glory of the bad leaders. In chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, these leaders, these foreign kings, these local leaders working in conjunction with them to exploit the people for their own benefit, they're likened to these mighty trees, three. Massive cedar trees, that's verse 1, which uh, Lebanon was famous. The oaks of Bashan in verse 2, which referred to a fertile region of the Transjordan, and then the thicket of the Jordan, right, this lush valley area. And it's a taunt song. You hear it's like, uh, well, O Cypress, well, Oaks of Bashan, and here's why the sound of the well of the shepherds for the glory is run. A taunt song. Now, we don't have taunt songs, but we have things like it in our context, okay? Taunt song, um, things like it, smack talk. Do that in sports. Like say, somebody comes to your stadium and they're picked to beat you and they, maybe they've got a star player who's in line for the Heisman or he's All-State or whatever and you're beating them by two touchdowns or whatever and you get to the end of the game, you better wait till you get to the end of the game because they might come back. So you get to the end of the game and the fans start chatting out, overrated. Right? You've heard that, Right? And so they'll say it again and again. What are they doing? They're taunting them, right? This trash talk. Um, See, politics, name-calling and stuff like that, low low things uh, beneath the dignity of... Like, you're right, you you look at people running for the highest office in the land and the things that they say. You scratch your head and you go, oh, children are running for office, Again, it's not our first time. Things like that, taunt, taunt song. There's an example of this in the New Testament. First Corinthians, we, we sang about it, or we referred to it in a song this morning. First Corinthians 15, 54 and 55, it's, it's where death is taunted. Death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Like you've lost your power. That's a taunt song in the New Testament. Death is being taunted because it's lost its power. It's been defeated by Jesus through his resurrection. Very cool. This is a taunt song. Talking smack about their game. All these leaders, these are the people who had all the power. And they're abusing their power. Verse 1, they've been eaten by fire. Verse 2, they've fallen. Uh, They've been felled in verse 2. They've been cut down. In their glory, they've been cut down, and they're the ones now who are ruined, not God's people. In their glory, they've been brought down. It's these bad shepherds whose glory is ruined, it says in verse 3. 
the Lord will replace them with better ones. And ultimately, a shepherd who will call himself the good shepherd. And what he'll do instead of exploiting them is he'll lay his life down for them. It's one of the ways you know somebody's a good shepherd. Through all of this, one of the things that we ought to say, talking about leadership, and that's going to be our application point, but we should say the, the big theme here is the Lord's grace. It's not, you've got to have leadership or, like, none of this happens without God stepping in and granting grace. God, the Lord doing what only the Lord can do. So that's the main thing, the Lord's grace. One aspect of that is the Lord providing leadership. Um, so the underlying assumption is leadership matters. In uh, a religious sphere like this, governmentally, you know, as we think about local politics and state politics and national politics and politics around the world, all those geopolitical issues that you can access with your phone, leadership in your home, right? Something's going on in your home. Be careful of getting what you want, uh, by the way. Uh, that's what they're coming out of. The God's people are, had gotten exactly what they wanted, and they're coming through the consequences of that. Our want to isn't always great when it comes to leadership. You might even say something to pray about in terms of American politics. Maybe what we see in American politics is simply, especially since we've got the right to vote, a reflection of what we want. Maybe that's not a great thing. I won't talk about politics too much more, but it is worth praying about. So here's what I want to ask, though. How are you with leadership? How do you do? Leadership matters. How do you engage it? And I don't, I'm not going to say any of this to be demeaning, um, but I, I just uh, I say it because I think we get so easily distracted between the role of leadership, being subordinate to God, and his, uh, his role, but also how we should do it and how we should um, walk under it. So let me ask you four questions to help you assess yourself. How, how do I respond to leadership? Am I doing it well uh, in this sense? Number one, can I identify it, uh, good leadership, when it's there? Do I have the ability to discern good leadership when it's present? It's not as easy as you think. Sometimes, I'll give you an example. Sometimes circumstances, you see like, you know, oh man, everything's bad. Maybe that's an indication of bad leadership. Could be. Or you see, everything's good. And you go, well, that's an indication of good leadership. Could be. But it, the circumstantial test, are my circumstances good or are my circumstances bad, can give you some false positives, some false negatives. Just because the circumstances are bad doesn't mean the leader is bad. You know, uh, England under, in World War II under Winston Churchill, Pretty good leadership, but the bombs would suggest uh, this isn't going very well, right? So people do that. They'll, a lot of times they'll go, okay, I'll look at my circumstances. Good circumstances, good leader. Bad circumstances, bad leader. Why is that a false positive sometimes? Well, the Israelites thought Moses was an awful leader. They wanted to kill him. He's God's leader, but they wanted to kill him. Uh, the reality is no leader is God. But one, and even Jesus, that's Jesus, and even he took his followers through some tough spots, right? Leaders aren't in control of every circumstance. Very entitled uh, idea that anytime something goes wrong, we do a very kind of American thing, a very consumeristic thing, very entitled thing. Something goes wrong and we go, you know, this is somebody's fault. 
We live in a fallen world. There's not a leader out there who can prevent every bad and gain every good. Not one. No. You've never followed one, you've never been one, and you're never going to get one until Jesus. That's it. Um, So what do you look for if you don't just look at circumstances? Well, it's not just circumstances. You look at wisdom, you look at character, and you look and see if this person has the right goals. Does this leader want to serve people? Or does he want to be served by people? You know, do you have the ability to identify good leadership? You're going to need a good leader in a tough situation, but the tough situation might distract you from being able to see who that is. Can you identify it? Number two, do you do your part to support good leadership? Meanness in any of those spheres, whether it's uh, church life or government or in the, in the home, at the workplace, Whatever, you can apply it broadly. But here's a good question. Uh, Can you follow? Some people, it doesn't matter who the leader is, they just can't follow. They just hate to take direction, it hurts their pride. The leadership might be great, but the heart to follow is just absent. Do you foster the leader being able to do his or her role? Sometimes you'll see people... Like, if the leader does what they want, then they go, oh, well, that, that guy or that gal is really good just because they did what they, they wanted. Is that a good test, just they, they do the things that you like? Isn't part of good leadership that they can point out unhappy truths to you? I mean, I think a good leader would be able to do that, right? You've got a blind spot in your game or there's a tough truth that you've got to be able to face, and a good leader would be able to point that out. Somebody who loves you would be able to do that, would, would do that because you need to hear it. Can you support a leader um, when they're right, but you're not feeling it? You know, you just wish they would do something else. Sure, it's preferences, but they chose the wrong side. The style of music or uh, this brand of uh, policies or whatnot. You know, what some people want is uh, they want to criticize or uh, support the, the leader based on whether or not they get what they want. That, that means they actually want to lead. They just don't want the risk or the responsibility of leading. So let me give you an example. It's, I think it's kind of a funny example. I've been doing this job a long time, and it just goes to the critical element of it. So this isn't a big deal, but every once in a while this happens where somebody... You know, I get lots of compliments. That's a pretty cool part of my job. You know, people are, can be incredibly encouraging. I get these weird sort of criticisms, too, things that people would never say to anybody else, right? Uh, where it's somebody, whether it's my style of clothing or, you know, my hair or something like that. My hair is just my hair. It's really none of your business. You know what I mean? It's like that kind of thing. Um, but I've had over, the, you know, like I said, I've gotten lots of compliments and stuff like that. But over the years, I've had some people go like, I think you should preach better. And I go, I agree. I, I, like, I hear me too, I, right? I wish I, every Sunday, that's what I like, God and I have this conversation, you know, where I'm just like, Lord, I, wish, I hope you bless it. I wish that went a little better. You know, sometimes I see it on my notes. I'm like, that's pretty good. And then I listen to it afterwards, and I'm like, that wasn't very good, you know. There's that problem. 
But when, you know, the few times that that's happened where somebody's that blunt, you know, I'll tell somebody, you know, I'm trying. I try. Pray for me. And here's, here's the rule. Here's the real point. I never really have the moral right to criticize if I don't have the commitment to pray. And I just think we're like gunslingers when it comes to criticism. You see those old westerns, spaghetti westerns, you know, Clint Eastwood, he's got the scowl, and as soon as something bad happens, he immediately prays to the Lord. No, right, the guns come out. Do I do my part to support good leadership in any sphere, right? Somebody teaching your kids class or leading music or taking care of our kids, so on. All right, here's the third question. Am I grateful for good leadership? It's not a given, right? Good leaders are seen as gifts. We should thank the Lord for them. We shouldn't necessarily adore the person. We should point to the Lord and go, this is not a given. Thank you for this, right? As, as, are you quicker to complain or are you quicker to express gratitude? Uh, could be a pastor. It could be a ministry leader. could be a governmental official. Kids, let me talk to you for just a second. Good leadership can show up in your homes. And if you're old enough to hear this and process the words that I'm saying, you're old enough to recognize in your parents, right, good leadership and express gratitude to God for them, right? You're old enough to thank God for a mom and dad. If you can see this, my mom and dad love me. They take care of me. They're, they're teaching me wisdom and right from wrong. They're pointing me to Jesus. They're making sacrifices for me. So if you're four years, four years old and you can see that, you can thank God for your parents, you should. That's good leadership, and God has given them to you. What a gift that you have parents who love you. Thank God for them. Number four, do I steward my opportunities at leadership? If leadership is something like this, it's like influence, do you, do you take advantage of the opportunities you have? Whether it's in a place like church or at home or work or wherever, i can give you a couple of questions to assess yourself. What kind of impact are you having? Do people look at your influence, your leadership, and do they think you're really in it for you? This is what you can get out of it. Or do they think you're there to serve them? What kind of impact are you having? Is it service or is it self-service? Is there anything I can do to make a better impact? Can I grow? The answer to that is probably yes. You know, you can do it for a long time, and the answer is probably yes. Most of us keep growing in different seasons. So leaders have power. That's the reality. Leaders have power. That's never a simple thing in a fallen world. You know, let me, so I want to close by this. Let me give you an acid test or a field test for somebody's character. You know what you do? You give them power. See what happens. There are a lot of people who are really good people, easy to interact with, all of that. Maybe they're even quite capable. You give, a, you give a person power, and a lot of times you'll see what they're made of. Who are they then? You know, what do they do then? Who do they become? You know, like kind of the golem's ring sort of thing? Do they become a monster with power? Plenty of people do it. And you can see that, and then you can compare that to Jesus. Philippians 2 talks about this says about Jesus, 
that he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead of doing that, he emptied himself of everything to the point that he identified with us all the way to the point of dying on the cross for our sins. And God vindicated him. So we get the, this perfect example in Jesus. We have the best model in Jesus who used his power to serve. It says he made himself nothing to take on the form of a servant. Jesus washed feet, guided the confused, included the outcast, died for the sinner. And you're not going to do all the things he did. I'm not going to do all the things he did. But my mission is in the scope of his mission. And your mission is in the scope of his mission. It's not as great, but the aim is still in the same direction. And you can look at this generally and say what Jesus did is he made the people around him better. Did it ultimately made the people around him better. The point is, you can too. Leadership, right? With God's blessing. My people are afflicted for a lack of a shepherd. Sometimes you've been called to step into that gap and to provide that kind of influence and that, that kind of wisdom and that kind of character. And it always comes with sacrifice every time question is, are you willing to pay the price? And one of the ways you know is that if you have to win, you're not. You're not. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the blessing of the good leaders we've been given throughout our lives and even now. As a people who serve in government, and they do it for, uh, to serve the people under their care. They do it to give you glory. We thank you so much for people like that who serve in our government, state and, and national, seems like there aren't very many of them. So we're grateful for the ones that are there, and we ask for more. For those who serve in our church, and they just love you, and they want Jesus' name to be great, and they want the people around them to flourish, we're so grateful for people like that. They're gifts from you. And for people who lead well at work, and they make the people around them better and uh, engage to serve their community well. And leadership in the home, people who love their kids, they love their family members, and they serve them, and they strengthen them. God, we're so, we're so grateful for that. Would you help us to grow, uh, to be better leaders, to be better followers when that's the case? As important as all of that is, ultimately, we're so grateful for Jesus, who took all of that power and all that status, and he laid it down to win us. So when you call your sheep, you say, they're mine, I've redeemed them. We know, ah, that's, that's the Lord Jesus' work, the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. We're grateful for him. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.